world of chaos, the triumph of God's kingdom in a world of chaos. Much of Jesus' ministry uh, during that three-and-a-half-year period took place around the Sea of Galilee. And he sometimes used the symbolism of the sea to challenge his disciples and to demonstrate his power. Now, in Matthew chapter 8, verses uh, 23 to 34, which are the verses we're going to be focusing on this morning, we see very clearly that every force in the universe is subject to the power and authority of Jesus. And our text teaches us that Jesus' disciples are partners with the God of the universe. How's that make you feel? You're special. Because of Christ, God has called us to be his partners in bringing the kingdom of God to this world. Now, we, like Jesus, are called to leave a place of comfort and to enter a broken world. I want you to follow along with me our passage as we begin the reading in Matthew chapter 8. We're actually going to begin at the 18th verse, which we read a couple of weeks ago. And I want to begin there today. Matthew chapter 8, verse 18 says this. Now, when Jesus saw a large crowd around him, he gave order to go to the other side of the sea. Now, hang on to that phrase because that's more than just there for location's sake. And then we begin at verse 23 where we read these words. Now, as he got into the boat, that is Jesus, his disciples followed him. One of the marks of a disciple is obedience. Jesus gave the order, and they got into the boat with him and followed him. Verse 24, suddenly a violent storm arose on the sea. So that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but Jesus kept sleeping. So the disciples came and they woke him up saying, Lord, save us, we're going to die. And he said to them, why are you afraid, you of little faith? Then he got up and he rebuked the winds and the sea and there was a great calm. And the men were amazed and they asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the sea obey him. Now when he had come to the other side, that is to the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him as they came out of the tombs. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. Suddenly they shouted, What do you have to do with us, Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? A long way off from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding. If you drive us out, the demons begged him, send us into the herd of pigs. Go, he said to them. So when they had come out, they entered the pigs, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and perished in the water. Then the men who tended them fled. 
they went into the city and they reported everything, especially what had happened to those who were demon-possessed. At that, the whole town went out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Let's pray. Father, thank you for um, your great love that you showed to us. You are so faithful. And we thank you that today you speak again to us through your word. And to those of us who profess to follow you, Lord, thank you for giving us moments like this where we can make course corrections in our lives. It is so easy for us to become distracted. And we thank you for calling this back to our purpose for showing us clearly why you have us here in this world. And Father, we pray that you will be blessed in the way that we respond, listen to your word this morning, and thank you so much for hearing our prayer. And it is in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Oftentimes in Jewish literature, water represents chaos. It's the abyss. It's the unknown. Now remember the Jewish people were largely a desert people. They were familiar with wandering in wilderness. And so we remember in the book of Genesis in the creation account, that the Bible tells us the Spirit of God hovered over the surface of the waters, that is, it hovered over the unformed. And the early chapters of the Bible answer who authorizes dominion over the chaos. In the Genesis account, God brings light here, darkness there. He brings the birds to the air, the fish to the sea. That which was formless and void, that which had no organization whatsoever, is formed by the very word of God as he speaks it. God orders the chaos and the formless takes form. Not coincidentally, Jesus, a Galilean rabbi, lives and carries out much of his ministry close to the sea. In other words, Jesus lives near the chaos. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 18, what we read is Jesus orders his disciples to go to the other side of the sea. And I said, hold on to that statement because that is significant in this passage. He orders them to cross over from the Sea of Gal over the Sea of Galilee, from the city of Capernaum, over to the Decapolis. Now, as you see on this map, you can notice that you have Capernaum, which is on the northwestern side of the Sea of Galilee. And this area over to the right side, far over on the right side of the map there, on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, is a region called the Decapolis. 
Now, those of you who are familiar with your Greek words know that the word deca means ten. And this was a province that uh, was representative primarily by ten city-states that had been organized there by the Greek Empire. And so what we have here is we have Capernaum, which is located next to the sea. Hold on to this. Capernaum is headquarters for Jesus' ministry. For most of it, except for that which we read in the Bible about his time in the city of Jerusalem where he went to observe the the Jewish festivals where Jesus is betrayed and crucified, most of the ministry you read about in the Bible takes place in this triangle as you look on the map, look at the city of Capernaum, Chorazin, and Bethsaida. There's a triangle there. Most of what we read about in the Gospels about the ministry of Jesus takes place in this triangle of ministry. Yet we notice that here is Jesus in Capernaum. This is ministry headquarters. Let's just label that the city of the king. On the other side of the sea, we have the Decapolis, and that is what we would know today as modern Jordan. Over on this side, it had come under Roman control like much of the modern world at that time, but it had remained Grecian in its culture. Alexander the Great had this great vision that the entire world would be uh, trained intellectually in their thought. They would become cultured, uh, known for their culture and their art forms and their understanding, and so... When he died, those who followed him made sure that his dream was carried out. And this is one of those areas where Alexander the Great's armies continued to march over, and they colonized this area, and they formed these Greek city-states, these ten cities in the Decapolis. Actually, the area had 18 cities, but it's known primarily for these ten. That's why it's called the Decapolis. Now, along with the Decapolis, what you have there is you have a very different system or form of life. They've been totally immersed in Greek culture. So they, what? They worship pagan gods. It's interesting, though, as we think about this map, that over here on this side, the Decapolis is actually the area... Uh, where the Israelites enter into the promised land. And when they come into the promised land, they come in from the east, and the tribe, the half-tribe of Manasseh is the one that conquers this area as they enter over into uh, the promised land. Now, I say all that because the Israelites had to displace the Canaanites who dwelled there, and the Canaanites were known for their pagan sacrifices which involved uh, sexual perversions and even child sacrifice. This has been a very pagan region for a very, very, very long time, and they strongly resisted anything that had to do with Judaism. They were opposed to it in the fiercest way. They resisted it, they resented it, and so they stayed away from it. But it was a two-way street. Jews didn't go to the Decapolis. The Decapolis, you see, represented everything 
that was abhorrent to the Jews. Everything that was awful about it over there because they glorified these pagan gods. They had all these pagan sacrifices. They glorified the human form. They glorified uh, the sexual perversions. All of these things that were so foreign to Judaism were being carried out over there in the Decapolis. And so what you had is you had stay away from that area policy. You don't go over there. And yet, what does the Scripture tell us? Jesus orders his disciples to go to the other side of the sea. To go from Capernaum to the Decapolis. The region of the Gadarenes. Now, if you were paying attention to the map, you noticed that there is this city, Gadara. And on the map, you can see Gadara is several miles from the Sea of Galilee. Now, this was a loose confederation of cities. They were not united in the sense that you would think of the United States of America, say, that has 50 states that are united with one common government. But Gadara was a capital city, something that had been acknowledged by the Greeks and the Romans as being extra special. And so when you talk about Gadarenes, you're not talking about city dwellers of the city of Gadara. You're talking about people who inhabited that region of the nation. So it says the region of the Gadarenes. Now, we have drawn this comparison of Capernaum, the city of the king, with the Decapolis, which represents everything that is opposed to Judaism. And this is what I want you to understand about it. This is a very vivid picture of what the Bible describes about our world today. You see, there are two kingdoms and there are two kings not many only two and we read about this in Matthew chapter 12 and I want to read for you now in Matthew chapter 12 a passage and I want you to listen closely to what it says Matthew 12 turn with me in your Bible if you want to go there with me we'll be there for just a moment I'm going to begin reading at verse 25, and this is what we read in Matthew 12, 25. Now, knowing their thoughts, Jesus told them, Every kingdom divided against itself is headed for destruction, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. Now, if Satan drives out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons drive them out? For this reason, they'll be your judges. Now, if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then, look here, the kingdom of God has come upon you. How can someone enter a strong man's house and steal his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. You see, in that passage of Scripture, Jesus talks about two kingdoms. In this world, there are two kings, only two. Not many, only two. 
There's the kingdom of the evil one. And there's the kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom of God. There are only two kings, not many kings, just two. There's King Jesus and there's Satan. And both of them rule over their kingdoms. And the Bible tells us this because when Jesus orders his disciples to go to the other side of the sea, I want you to hear what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, I'm going over there to take back what's mine. It's my territory. It belongs to me, and I'm going to take it back. You know, the Bible says this in so many words. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, it says there, The one who commits sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. But the Son of God was revealed for this purpose. Now look at this. For this purpose. To destroy the devil's works. And Jesus says, I'm going over there to take care of business. I'm going to destroy the devil's works. Well, then on what's authority? Whose authority? How do you plan on accomplishing this? Now remember I said Jesus often uses the sea to teach his disciples a lesson and also to display his power. So what we see in our text unfolding before our very eyes is a life lesson Jesus is going to teach his disciples. First of all, we see that Jesus has power and authority over the natural realm and over human fears. You know the story. The story is that Jesus orders his disciples to get into a boat. He's tired. He's fully human. He's exhausted. He's been immersed in ministry for a very long time, and he orders his disciples to get into a boat and to go to the other side of the sea. Well, he falls asleep. Here comes a storm. By the way, I don't know how much you're aware. I said that the Jews were a desert people. Um, you might understand that there were not a lot of Olympic swimmers who were Jewish. They weren't known for their swimming ability. Do you know that most fishermen did not get far offshore? And the reason is because many of them didn't have good life-saving technique. So they stayed near the shore when they did their fishing. Here they are out on the Sea of Galilee, which had its deepest parts way over your head. Here comes this violent storm, which can happen in that region because you've got a mountain range. Below sea level, you have a warm water surface. Over this mountain range, cool air can sweep down into that valley. When it merges with that warm air on the Sea of Galilee, a storm can pop up just like that. They're out here in a violent storm. Pops up. And what does Jesus do? He speaks a word. And he calms the storm. He brings order 
to chaos. Now, not just in the natural realm, but also in the realm of their hearts. When Jesus speaks this word, it brings calm, peace, order to the situation. Now, this is not accidental. What is Jesus trying to do here? Jesus is demonstrating that he is God in human flesh. In the ministry of Jesus, two significant events take place on the Sea of Galilee. One is Jesus stills the storm. I want you to listen. Have you ever considered what Psalm 107 says? It's not going to be on the screen, but write down the reference because I want you to hear it and you just pay real close attention to it if you can't turn there. Psalm 107, I want to read it for you, beginning at verse 23. Kind of a long passage here. <clears throat> Others went to sea in ships, conducting trade on the vast water. They saw the Lord's works, his wondrous works in the deep. He spoke and raised a stormy wind that stirred up the waves of the sea, rising up to the sky, sinking down to the depths, their courage melting away in anguish. They reeled and staggered like a drunkard, and all their skill was useless. <clears throat> then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. <clears throat> and he, <clears throat> wow, <clears throat> and he swallowed a frog. <clears throat> you know, I actually have a bottle of water. It's never where you need it. Maybe that'll help. All right, Psalm 107. Reaching the climax here. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. Does this, any of this sound familiar? And he brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper, and the waves of the sea were hushed, and they rejoiced when the waves grew quiet. These people were familiar with the Hebrew Scriptures. You see what Jesus is doing here? Remember, I said he's going out on the Sea of Galilee to teach his disciples the lesson. And what is the lesson? Look to the Scriptures. Do you know the last time the Bible speaks about calming a storm? In Judaism, we find it in Psalm 107, but don't you know that their minds go back to the creation story? God speaks a word to the chaos, the water, and he brings form to the formless. He orders the world. He is trying to teach them, I'm not just another man. There's a second event that takes place on the Sea of Galilee. It's not in our passage this morning, but it's one with which many of you are familiar. Again, a strong wind suddenly blows in. It's causing the waters to grow rough. 
Much to their astonishment, the disciples see their rabbi Jesus walking on water. And so these Jewish disciples, as terrified as they were, bear witness to what it looks like when the Son of God becomes a man. Again, I want you to turn with me over to the book of Job in the ninth chapter, and I want you to listen to what it says there. Job chapter 9. I'm going to start reading in verse 4. We'll go through verse 8. God is wise and all-powerful. Who has opposed him and come out unharmed? He removes mountain without their, mountains without their knowledge, overturning them in his anger. He shakes the earth from its place so that its pillars tremble. He commands the sun not to shine and seals off the star. He alone stretches out the heavens, and listen to this, and treads on the waves of the sea. Who walks on the waters? God does. Jesus tells them, let's go to the other side. School is in session. All along, he's expecting his disciples to make this connection. For through these miracles, Jesus shows himself to have power both of the natural elements and over the human spirit, their fears. And such miracles should cause them to recognize this is the Son of God. He can save us. He's the creator. He's the ruler of the natural world. But there's a second series of events that take place in our passage. In verses 28 to 34, we're given a different scene. Now the boat has landed, and uh, we don't have the map up there right now, but I I, I simply want to point out to you, uh, there we go. Okay, so if you look along that right side there of the map, over on the side of the Decapolis, it says that they sail from one side to the other side. There are a limited number of places along that shoreline that can be ports, but to be perfectly honest, we don't know exact location. Now, I bring that uh, to your attention because the Bible tells us that immediately they were met by two men who came out of the tombs who were demon-possessed. Verse 29 tells us, that the demons acknowledge who Jesus is. They call him the Son of God. That's how they address him. We don't have any record of these two men having any encounter with Jesus before. We do know that the Bible tells us, check me out, Matthew chapter 4, verse 25, when word spread about Jesus, he's over in Capernaum, he's over in that triangle, When word spread about Jesus that he was healing people, that this was a man who was not like any other man, it says, people from where? The Decapolis came to Jesus. Now Jesus is going over to the Decapolis. And what we see here in our passage of Scripture is 
that the demons recognize Jesus the Son of God, which, by the way, is his messianic name, Psalm chapter 2, verses 7 and 12. They recognize it's Jesus before his own, uh, recognize he's the Son of God even before his own disciples make the confession. And then in verses 28 to 32, we're taught a lot about the demonic world. Several things we learn about demons in those verses. First of all, they recognize the deity of Christ. Secondly, we notice that they're limited in their knowledge. They don't have all understanding of timing or what's about to take place. Thirdly, we can see in these verses that they know that they will ultimately be judged by Christ. We also see, fourthly, that they cannot act without permission from Christ who has higher authority. And looking at verse 32, we find a fifth truth regarding demons, and that's their destructive, murderous nature. Now I want you to look at a map with me, another map. This map that we have before us is a view from Tiberias, which is on the western side of the Sea of Galilee. Actually, it's in the southern part of the Sea of Galilee. And that's the narrowest part of the sea. So that you can look from the city of Tiberias over to the eastern shoreline of the Sea of Galilee and the reason why I'm showing you this is I want you to see these cliffs here. You see that? Because the Bible tells us that geographically what happens is that Jesus crosses over with his disciples from Capernaum over to the Decapolis. They go into a port, and I want you to be able to see this is the setting. Now, I don't know when the last time was that you went to a pig race, but pigs are not known for their long-distance running. The reason why we had this statement, the region of the Gadarenes, the reason why we know Gadara, the city, Gadara, is five miles from the shoreline. It says to us in the Scripture that the Disciples, when they got out of the boat, Jesus was immediately met by two demon-possessed men. So they're not in the city of Gadara. They're with their herd of sheep. It says that the demons cried out and they said, Send us into the pigs! And so he does. And then what does it say? They rushed over the side of the cliff and they drowned in the sea. Now verse 34 tells us in Matthew chapter 8 that when the Gentiles from the nearby town heard what happened, they asked Jesus to leave. Go away. Now I don't know what they were thinking, but it would not be a stretch to believe that their thought was Please leave us now. We make our living raising these pigs. We sell pigs for food and we sell pigs for sacrifices. If he doesn't leave now, he's going to wipe out our herds too. 
So they want Jesus to leave. You remember when we set up this passage of Scripture, we talked about how if you were to make a graph and on the left side you were put the city of Capernaum and on the right side the Decapolis? Two areas could not be further apart from one another. I'm not talking about just geographical difference. We're talking about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the evil one. Now the Pharisees wanted to have nothing to do with the Decapolis. They didn't want to interact with the Gentiles. What did Jesus do? He orders his disciples to go to the other side of the sea. Do you see the dilemma for the Pharisees? How can we remain clean if we intermingle with those who are unclean? And so what happens is, rather than for them to take the news about the one true God to these people who obviously are resistant, who don't want to hear about it, they don't want to know anything about this message. And so what do the Pharisees do? They condemn their sinful practices, but what else do they do? They not only hate the sin, they hate the sinner. Friends, friends. That's our dilemma, isn't it? In our desire to remain holy and pure and clean and reserved as vessels for God's own use, we withdraw from the world that needs us. We surround ourselves with our circle of friends. We remain in comfort. When Jesus orders his disciples to do what? Go to the other side of the sea. Here's where we run amok. Like the Pharisees, we can look around our society and we can look around a neighbor or somewhere else, news. You hear about something that you think to yourself, how could they do that? I, I mean, it just sounds sickening to you. Do you feel it settling in on you? in your desire to want to stand for that which is moral and holy and good and right, what happens even as you're listening to the newscast? You're judging. And we, like the Pharisees, can condemn not only the sin, but the sinner. You know the lesson Jesus wants us to learn here? Two of them. 
First of all, we are to love the sinner and hate our sin. Because in those moments of judgment, you see, we forget that we, too, are sinners saved by grace. The message that we have is the message that they need. I said two lessons. That's lesson number one. Lesson number two is this. God has not called us to retreat, but to engage. We, like Jesus, are called to leave a place of comfort and to enter a broken world. This morning, as we come to this time, <clears throat> you know, I have a feeling that there are <clears throat> many things going on in our lives. And some of those things perhaps spoke to you in the message because when we talked about chaos, you said, you don't even know what chaos is. My life is chaotic right now. That happens to all of us from time to time. It's Jesus who brings order to the chaos. And I want you to know that he's right there at your heart's door right now, knocking on the door of your heart saying, I know what's going on in your life, and I'm not scared of it. I'm not frightened by it. I'm not afraid to get involved. But you have to open up the door and you have to invite Jesus to come into your heart. And say, Lord Jesus, I need you. I can't handle this by myself. He's just waiting for you to open the door so he can come in and save you. That may be your decision today. And this morning as we enter into a time where we remember what Jesus has done for us, it's symbolized by the Lord's Supper. I want to read a passage for you as we prepare our hearts to observe the Lord's Supper this morning. From 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 
So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and the blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself and in this way let him eat. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Two instructions. We're told to do two things. The first is to remember. We're to remember what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. You know, a lot of times we don't understand all the anguish that Christ went through when he died on that cross. Of course there was the physical pain. We can't even imagine that. But beyond that, Jesus took our sin upon himself. Now God is holy. And he does not tolerate sin. Jesus, who never sinned, voluntarily takes our sin upon himself to become our sin sacrifice. Nothing we could ever do could pay for our sin. We were helpless, lost, without hope in the world. But Jesus came. And he took our sin upon himself. Well, you know what that means? That means God, who cannot tolerate sin, sent his wrath upon Jesus, who bore our sin for us, so that Christ took the punishment we should have received. What a gift. And so he says to us, remember what Jesus did for you the second instruction is this examine yourself look inside your heart right now this morning as you come to the Lord's table as you prepare to receive the wafer the juice as you remember what Jesus did for you look inside your own heart You know, I think it's good advice. Keep short accounts with God. Stuff can build up over time. Unconfessed sin. Sin that we have not acknowledged to God. This morning as we prepare to observe the Lord's Supper, examine yourself. Make things right between you and Jesus. Now only you and he will know what that looks like and what that feels like. It's very personal. We're just told do it. But I want to say to you this morning that this is an observance that only has meaning for those who have confessed their faith in Jesus and chosen to follow him. And the reason why I give you that warning is because it says examine yourself. Are you a believer follower of Jesus?
for the one who does not examine himself will be guilty of the body and blood of Jesus. And you'll eat and drink condemnation on yourself. So examine yourself. Now I want to say to you this morning that if you're there and you're examining yourself and you're online watching the service this morning, as you're examining yourself and you're thinking about the observance of the Lord's Supper this morning, it may be that today you say, I'm going to follow Jesus. I prayed and I've asked Jesus to come into my life to save me now. One way you confess your faith in Jesus is through the observance of the Lord's Supper. It may be today is the first time that you take the Lord's Supper knowing Jesus is your Savior. Having Him as your personal Lord and Savior. There's nothing magical about these elements. They're symbolic. These won't save you. Only Jesus can save you. But in taking these elements, you acknowledge, thank you, Jesus, for dying for me. And then the Bible says that if you follow Jesus, you ought to tell somebody about it. So today, if that's your profession of faith and you're believing in Christ for the first time, then as soon as we conclude our service, I want you to come down to the front. I'm going to be here. Andy will be here at the front for just a few moments. And tell us that today you're following Jesus as your Savior and Lord. Don't leave without doing that. I want us to bow together and prepare ourselves, remembering those two commands. Remember, examine.